Welcome to the Bluegrass Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Amber Can, pharmacist and member of the Governor's Medical Advisory Panel last year. We're going to be talking pharmaceuticals, dosages, and of course, cannabis. Not to mention a very special musical feature by Alex Teller. Let's get right into it. How'd you get exposed to cannabis for the first time? And how did you end up being on the advisory board? Yeah. So um, I worked a lot of my career in the addiction medicine space. Um, I worked with a lot of people who were in recovery and uh, and advising them on on use of medications uh, during their recovery, even, even years into sobriety. And the more and more throughout my career, I've been a pharmacist for 23 years now. And throughout that uh, interaction with lots of patients, you know, cannabis would come up. And honestly, I wasn't taught about cannabis in pharmacy school. It was very, uh, uh, very much the taboo, as you might imagine. Uh, we did not learn about the endocannabinoid system. And honestly, you know, I was in pharmacy school in the late 90s. So... The, the ECS was just being not discovered, I suppose, but being um, the, the, the ins and outs of it were being articulated at that time. So that was not something I learned about at all in pharmacy school. Um, so as my career went forward, I would hear patients talking about cannabis um, and I worried about sobriety and how it would affect that. But the more I talked to patients, the more I realized that um, cannabis was a part of a larger therapeutic plan for them. So it got my curiosity peaked and I just started educating myself more about it. Um, as as a t for a time, I was a professor at a college of pharmacy and it made me realize that it was unconscionable that we were sending out new pharmacist grads with no education about how cannabis fits into the, the patient care picture. There are drug interactions to consider. There are dosing um, and disease state considerations that I think need to be talked about. But we weren't educating even, even 20 years later. We weren't, uh, from my graduation, we weren't educating new pharmacists about it. There's very little continuing education about it for practicing pharmacists. So as I was teaching in, in the College of Pharmacy, I wanted to develop a cannabis elective. And as you might imagine, it was it was going to be pretty popular. Um, in the interim, uh, the, my department had some downsizing and my position became eliminated. So I didn't get to teach it, but I was able to create some continuing education for my fellow pharmacists in Kentucky um, and then um, just and, and just continue to educate myself more. Um, and then then later I discovered the program at the University of Maryland Baltimore, uh, their master's program run out of the College of Pharmacy. It is a master's of science in cannabis therapeutics. Um, so naturally I was, very excited about that. And I started that program last year to add to the many letters after my name that I already have. Um, my, my real interest in that is that I honestly think that 
that we we as a healthcare community have too long and ignored the benefits and the risks that cannabis can pose uh, and offer to patients. And that by not talking about it, we are continuing this taboo that patients are not able to share it with their healthcare providers. When I spoke to the Kentucky Pharmacists Association last summer, they I, I asked the group of my, my colleagues, how many of you ask your patients about cannabis use? And most of them were giving me kind of a, a sheepish look and um, uh, unfortunately a few giggles in the room too. But my, I mean, my, my question was serious in that it, we ask about tobacco use. We ask about alcohol use. A lot of healthcare organizations ask about illicit drug use. Mm-hmm. And if we are not talking to patients about cannabis, if we're not asking that, then they're not going to be feel, feel comfortable in sharing it. And the, the feedback I got from some pharmacists was, um, I, I don't know how to counsel about drug interactions. I don't know them. So I don't ask because I don't even know what I would say if they said they are using. Uh, of course, my response to that is, Every pharmacist has a patient that is using cannabis, multiple patients. Um, so we are derelict in our duties as pharmacists and as care providers if we are not taking that part of the picture into account. Um, some of the pharmacists said, I don't know where I would document that. My, my electronic health system, my pharmacy system doesn't have a place for me to document that about a patient. Um, and that's true. Uh, the the IT space around cannabis has not really caught up. And I feel like, and even some pharmacists said, I'm afraid if I document that in my pharmacy system, then corporate will, ha- I'll, I'll suffer some sort of corporate uh, ramifications by asking about it. And that's really sad, honestly, that, um, that they feel uh, limited in what they can ask a patient. Um, if that is true. Um, so my goal really is to educate my fellow healthcare providers about cannabis um, so that we can take better care of our patients. I'm always here for the science. I'm always here for the, the on-team patient. And that's, I just think cannabis is, is, is a part of the reality that we have to, we have to educate ourselves about. And luckily I was uh, honored to be appointed by Governor Bashir last summer onto his med- medical cannabis advisory board. I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with the ups and downs of legalization of a medical program in um, in Kentucky. And barring the covering or barring the 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 passing of the bill that that did pass the House last se- last session, um, the governor was trying to do what was in his power to make cannabis more accessible to the people who needed it. So of course he put together the advisory committee. It was comprised of a few medical doctors, quite a few patient advocates, and I was honored to be the only pharmacist on the committee. So we, we went around to town halls uh, on several, several dates all across the state from Paducah to Pikeville and Frankfurt um, and Northern Kentucky. So the overwhelming um, uh, sentiment of those town hall meetings was that 
uh, patients, people in Kentucky, citizens of Kentucky were overwhelmingly in favor of more access to medical cannabis. Um, and of course, the, I don't think that was a surprise to anybody on the board nor the governor, but it really, I think, hit home for many legislators who had pushed back before um, for various reasons, most of them um, uninformed ones, I think, or, or just outright stubborn ones and financial ones, honestly. And they saw how, much, how many of their constituents um, really cared about this issue. So there's a lot of moving stories that I heard during those town town hall meetings. So many veterans turned out, which is very moving. Um, And honestly, it's like the most bipartisan issue that I can think of in the history of Kentucky politics. Mm -hmm. So being on that board was such a blessing because I got to meet other healthcare professionals that were interested in cannabis therapeutics. And honestly, the the other advocates, the patient advocates, mothers whose children benefit from cannabis, um, patients who long had been using the standard opioid cocktails for pain um, that had found cannabis and their life had turned around. So that put me in contact with with amazing people. I was happy to serve the governor's office in that capacity and um, hopefully that that um, or I, I really think that informed his his passing or his uh, signing of the executive order that went into effect in January of this year. Um, so that, of course, expanded medical access to patients who could purchase it legally in other states, it used his pardoning power, essentially uh, for a pre pardon um, for anybody who had possession and and met certain criteria. And then, as you know, uh, we did later get a, uh, the Senate bill passed this year that opened the door to creation of Kentucky, uh, having a medical cannabis program. And again, I was honored to be part of that signing. The governor called the people who were on the, the advisory board and others to be with him in the rotunda when the bill was signed. So that was, that was amazing. And Mm -hmm. I got to keep one pins that he signed it with so that's pretty cool (laughs) and so i guess the the whole point of this was to get one of those pins (laughs) (laughs) and what was that process like of sort of that feedback process not just going to people in kentucky but also did the advisory board have like internal conversations before you all made recommendations did you all have meetings to try and figure out what even the best way it was to start getting this feedback? How did that work going yep. to the public and making these recommendations? We had um, an initial kickoff meeting just to introduce the board members to each other and learn about our various backgrounds. And then um, we also met with the co-chairs of the committee who were both already members of the of um, the governor's cabinet in one way or another, public safety, uh, the the uh, Health and Human Services Department of Kentucky, um, and but we also had uh, you know people who were representing corrections and um, other organizations there too. So we did have a kickoff meeting, um, and then when we had the town hall meetings, we were we were there. The committee members were there. Um, 
mainly as a to answer questions, to 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 record that feedback. All these meetings were recorded, and they are on YouTube still. Um, I think you could go to the the official Medical Cannabis Kentucky website. Hopefully, you can link that in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. And those meetings are still on YouTube for for viewing. So it was. Uh, the governor did watch those meetings. Um, he wasn't there personally, but he was able to watch all of the meetings and hear all of the feedback. We as a committee, uh, we, they had a, the website set up. So uh, if you couldn't be at a meeting, they were telling people, if you can't be at the town hall, please use this website to submit your comments. And we would get feedback from the committee chairs about just the, the kind of comments that were coming in. And I think it was, gosh, 98% of the, the comments that were left by people who were by people who could not be at the town hall meetings were also uh, largely positive and supportive of a medical cannabis measure in Kentucky. So yeah, we uh, after all of those meetings were were finished, we met, put together some um, some recommendations. We as committee members also met with the chairs to provide our particular uh, take on it. Say, you know, my expertise is in pharmacy and others would be coming from other backgrounds, say a physician or a a patient advocate would have their own concerns and recommendations. And they would honestly, everybody took out of those meetings um, stories that, you know, I, I might resonate with some person's story and I would bring that up where other committee members heard other stories that resonated. So we put together a, a report officially that was presented to the governor. And then um, he, of course, was was consulting with his team legally to see what could be done out of the governor's office. And um, we didn't uh, and the purpose of the committee was not really to hash out uh, the, the medical program, of course. It was more of hearing the voices of Kentuckians, uh, being an expert to provide that particular, for me at least, for being an expert in pharmacy to provide my particular uh, concerns or um, uh, you know, just my, my background and, and education on the topic. And then have that all available in the report for the governor to review. I'll say my only criticism really of the advisory board is that mm-hmm. as far as I could tell, there was not a farmer or a cultivation specialist on it. No, nope. no, there wasn't. Um, and I would also say there wasn't a nurse. There wasn't, mm-hmm. um, there were lots of other people that could have been on there. Um, and, and of course, you know, um, that it had to be limited to a certain number of people and not everybody on the committee could make it to every meeting, but you're right. I I agree that there were, there were people, industries, there were uh, contingents that were not, uh, that were not considered. However, I think the medical, the, the, the initial advisory board, I think was designed in a way not to inform policy, but honestly, I think it was, designed to be a, a charm offensive for those legislators that were still resistant to uh, a medical measure. Um, and for that reason, it did its, its it, it had its purpose. Um, I never want anybody, anybody that has a, um, a stake in the, 
in the larger picture for their voices not to be heard or for them to be excluded. Um, so yes, I agree. Not everybody was a part of that committee, but it was so focused on a specific purpose. Um, my hope is, is that now with that, we can actually move forward, that there is, there are good people listening to the right people. And after you got done with the advisory board, not makeup of the board aside, what were some things that you were glad got forward? And was there anything that got left on the table that you thought maybe could have been passed along as well? Yeah, the Senate bill or the House bill that passed in 2022. No, let's see. What year are we in? <laughs> um, 2021, when the House bill that passed then. Uh, of course, my professional bias is toward pharmacy. And I really liked that bill. Um, not that it was perfect, but a pharmacist did play a key role in the process of patient care for a, a medical cannabis patient. Um, it said that dispensaries had to name a director of pharmacy who would be have to be a pharmacist. Um, and then that and then patients would have a consultation on their first uh, dispensary visit uh, to essentially, you know, go over to review their medications, current medications, talk about what the recommendation uh, from their cannabis provider had been, and then create, you know, just be a part of the whole care team as pharmacists are now. Um, so I like that, of course, because I do think that pharmacists bring a lot to the table in our knowledge of pharmacology. Um, I, I heard from uh, a couple of the patient advocates on the board that they didn't like that measure because they felt like it added cost. Um, I don't disagree with that. I don't know that we've like, um, uh, really, we don't know the cost that it would add. There was a measure that pharmacists that consulted with patients could charge the patient no more than a certain amount. I think it was $40, perhaps. It didn't say that the pharmacist had to charge the patient, but that was, it was limited in that what the patient could be charged by the pharmacist. Um, and we know, I mean, cannabis is not covered by insurances, and this can be a very expensive venture for many people. Um, and honestly, it's a lot of people are even are left out of the cannabis, um, uh, the medical cannabis uh, option because of the cost of of care right now. So, um, you know, my thought was that with that bill, pharmacists, of course, could be compensated by the dispensary in, in way of a consulting fee or or some other uh, arrangement. Um, the new bill, Senate Bill. 47 that did pass and the governor signed, pharmacists were not as prominent in the role. And that's not to say that pharmacists can't be part of the process. It's just that um, that, that part was minimized. So I do think it's a call to action for my fellow pharmacists to still keep, keep um, educating themselves and being a part of the patient care process, insisting from the medical community that we also have um, have expertise that can be of use and of service to the patient. So that is that is also my goal is to just keep on educating our legislators um, and as we go forward, 
people, you know, business leaders and, the, and so forth about the, the benefits that pharmacists can bring to the table in this area. Um, now, uh, there were, and, and the, the bill that passed was not perfect either, but I do think that there, the, those, some of the things that we just haven't hashed out yet, I just think, uh, I think of three in the morning and I think, gosh, I hope somebody's thinking about this. And, that, you know, just from the pharmacy standpoint of how we document, how we um, report to the, you know, the controlled substances reporting system that other controlled substances are, are listed under. Um, uh, lots of pharmacy related things that I think we, we still need to think about because it's a complicated situation. I mean, uh, other states have done this, though. We are well behind other states in implementing medical cannabis, so we should learn from the other states who are far ahead. Uh, we don't have to recreate the wheel here. Out of curiosity, I think I probably fall somewhere between you and the patient advocates. I think there definitely should be some form of medical professional. Do you feel like it needs to be a pharmacist, or do you feel like something maybe like an RN would be a good substitute or a good placeholder for that medical voice, but also maybe not all the way to just maybe that product end of it. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I don't, I don't even see the pharmacists. I, I agree. I mean, any kind of medical oversight or medical, um, uh, I don't want to say oversight. It sounds too, um, sounds too much like overlord and that's definitely not what the cannabis industry needs um it's too many of those in there in the business anyway yeah. but um consultation yeah consultation yeah some sort of medical consultation um it, it, in any form um in my opinion is a win of course they do have a medical cannabis physician or i think nurse practitioners are also included in the bill now so they do have that consultation medically with someone who is more trained on the diagnostic side. Certainly nurses, RNs, um, they have the, in their training much, um, you know, they have a, a, a skill in that how they take care of patients and how they assess and diagnose patients um, and, and treat. Um, pharmacists, of course, have a very different um, have different training in that way and that we are so focused on the pharmacology and the chemistry of medications that, you know, we are the experts and nurses do not get the extent of pharmaceutical training that pharmacists do. Physicians do not get that level of training. So um, again, I'm, you know, I'm always, I always think a pharmacist should be involved. But I will say the caveat is a, a trained pharmacist in cannabis should be involved, not just someone who took a CE course and wants to make a buck. Um, I think we do have to watch out for, for lots of those uh, people. Not that they're charlatans, but they're, they're, the, the, um, the motivation there uh, will be to minimally inform oneself about the about cannabis and then maybe overestimate their expertise so so yeah i think anytime a patient can consult with someone who is properly trained in in the cannabis and the medical cannabis field is a win um, but then again i i also think that many 
healthcare professionals are not so are not familiar with how cannabis fits into the picture and certainly not the drug interactions that could be involved. Now, I, and I wanted to say that um, the patient advocates that were not fans of the pharmacist involvement in the process, there, there, uh, a couple I, I talked to, they were like, I, I don't need to talk to a pharmacist. Like, um, it just adds cost, and that doesn't. They didn't see the benefit. And for those types of people who have been uni- using cannabis for years, I agree. They know much more about how products and cannabinoids affect their bodies uh, more so than any one pharmacist could um, could know. And uh, but I, I really think the benefit is for patients who are new to cannabis therapy, um, especially with with complex disease states, uh, very complex medication regimens already in place. That is truly where someone who is a pharmacology expert can shine. So this is a, a bit of a complicated question. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Even though pharmacists definitely are going to have immense benefit in using this, does that necessarily mean that pharmacists should exclusively be able to use this? Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. No, absolutely not. Um, I think that there are lots of m- medical professionals that could, you know, that properly get trained and truly immerse themselves in cannabis therapy that can absolutely consult with patients on the drug interactions and um, and nuances of of fitting cannabis into the full therapeutic picture. So, no, I, I, I agree with you there that it shouldn't be the purview um, of only pharmacists. Absolutely not. Because that once you start siloing people into those those roles, then you're just creating more barriers for patients. And that's not anything like what I would, uh, that needs to happen. Obviously we've created our own barriers to patients for far too long. And this is, I guess, going a little bit further into that in terms of viewing it as say a controlled substance, I kind of wanted to pick your brain because last week Mm -hmm. there was a major push in Maine to treat it as a food rather than as a drug under that Mm -hmm. FDA umbrella. Do you have any thoughts about that or about how that might be good, bad, worries, benefits? Um, I, I have conflicting thoughts within my own brain about that. <laughs> I agree. I mean, if we if we want to be fair, let's it's a plant product. Let's let reg, let's regulate it like we do other plant products. Right. I mean, if that's where it, at the very basis, I don't see how. um it, the cannabis plant, the natural product, um, should be regulated in any other way than the other types of plant-based supplements and um, um, herbs and that sort of thing that you see crowding the shelves of the local pharmacies and and, um, and big box stores. So why is that any different? Well, I mean, we know why it's different. It's there's a long and complicated and frankly racist history behind cannabis uh, legislation. So so, yeah, part of me says 
I mean, let's treat it like let's let's be consistent. Let's treat it like any other plant product that we that we regulate. Now, the other flip side of that is the supplement diet supplements, herbs, all those sort of things in this country are woefully unregulated. And the 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 thing that gives me hives thinking about it is uh, with with all of the issues of supplements that are out there, not only are there many things that are that can be harmful for patients um, and that frankly have quality issues, they're not regulated in any way that say even what's on the label has to be what's in the bottle. And we hear all the time about recalls and um, manufacturing issues where uh, contamination of one of one drug has been found in supplements. Um, there were there's a spate of new stories several years ago about warfarin, which is a blood thinner and a rat poison uh, historically, was found in several different supplements. So clearly, clearly that is a health issue. But the way that it is self-policed by the supplement industry um, is problematic. Now, some companies are reputable. Some companies do offer um, a much higher standard and are transparent about their their process and their testing and, um, um, you know, the product that's in the bottle. And they, they have a good reputation for providing a quality product. But then again, there's all of the gas station Thing, you know, bottles on the shelf that just um, really make me nervous. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I mean, I, the the uh, I don't I wouldn't call myself a libertarian per se because I'm super liberal. Also, I don't I guess those two things don't have to be necessarily uh, mutually exclusive. But I mean, part of me says what well, we shouldn't regulate it at all. You know, let's adults are adults and we should be able to let adults make decisions about their own health care. So as a healthcare provider, I'm certainly a fan of patient autonomy and the ability to inform the patient with good science so that the patient can be a part of their decision making about their own health care. Um, but then again, uh, humans being humans and the capitalistic um, machine of the pharmaceutical industry, I worry about um, bad apples coming into the industry and making a buck and then, you know, not having a shingle out the next day and, and leaving a trail of harmed patients in the way. I think that that's a good viewpoint to have because we definitely see that in cannabis already throughout mm-hmm. the industry and especially with our largest operators. And I think especially for this, it, part of it is the limited licensing in a lot of states there's monopoly on we are your only source for this product Mm -hmm. so you can either buy our product or not buy at all which also strengthens the traditional market black market however you want to call it of course and i want to know do you think that this is a question of regulation and policy is it in terms of if you're operating at scale you simply can't monitor the amount of product you're putting out where do you feel like this maybe falls down at well um you know i 
I don't understand all the, I, I don't, I don't know all the, the issues related to production and how other states do their licenses, but I do know that, you know, monopolies exist and, um, and the problems that can come about. Um, so again, I think that there are things that are done well in some states. There are things that have, are done poorly and, if anything, should why not have, you know, if, if we can just reschedule it, first crying out loud. I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the problems would be um, eliminated by rescheduling it out of C1, uh, Schedule 1 controlled substance. And I don't know how I feel, honestly, about, well, should it be a C3? Should it be a C5? Should it not be scheduled at all? I, I mean... I could argue with myself all day on that. Um, but I think that if we, if we can remove this C1 um, albatross around the neck of the cannabis plant, then it opens up so many more things that we could talk about. Um, until then, we are just sort of shackled um, with the federal... Um, the federal controlled substance moniker and, and we're limited on research and access and licensing and everything else. So, yeah, I think, I, I think we can do a better job of course, of who, who can license it, who can grow it, who can um, process it, all of those things. And I don't know the answer to those. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on something that I think is fairly common, especially with cannabis. And this is a perception issue that cannabis is consequence free that a lot of people are under the misapprehension of, and that's dosage creep. And I want to know how, as a pharmacist, you all deal with that or maybe interact with that because, and I don't, I hate referring cannabis to opiates in any way, but like, moving into fentanyl where now there are prescriptions for a stronger more tightly controlled version but maybe it's also more possible to misapply or not take correctly because the dosage and the quantity the quantity is going down but it's becoming more powerful yeah oh yeah i mean we see that in so many things right and a lot of the illicit drugs on the market a lot of the um, even just in the opioid pharmaceutical industry. Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, obviously the money is there, right? So the money people, patients, um, it, on the whole, I mean, like recreational patients perhaps, or, you know, adult use patients generally historically, the higher THC content has been valued. And so, in general, the industry has responded, and so they've they've uh, cultivated their their stock the stock generally that we can what we have access to with higher higher THC, but they haven't focused really on the other cannabinoids uh, nor terpenes. I think that's turning around though. I mean, we're patients are becoming more informed about all the other products that can. Uh, or all the other components of the cannabis plant more so than they used to be. Um, but yeah, I think um, that, you know, the medical cannabis patient 
is not looking for the highest THC. And if that is all that the industry is providing, then yeah, we're just, we're, we're leaving those patients, those people uh, behind. And we're not, we're not giving the benefit of all the other cannabinoids, um, prim- you know, like, like CBD that has a lot of benefit uh, to the patient and a lot of medical use that we, that it, it's, it's being de-emphasized. So just like any other pharmaceutical, uh, um, in that way, perhaps, perhaps some sort of, um, I don't know what to call it. The, um, re- I always hate more regulation, but just some sort of system to where we have a diverse range of products that meet people's needs where they are, rather than just the 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 dosage creep and the the THC potency creeping up and up. Because um, frankly, um, you know that that isn't that isn't what the medical cannabis community is about. And I think part of this is also misinformation to a large extent mm-hmm. within the industry. This promotion of THC as a measure of potency, mm-hmm. when in reality, like we're talking about the entourage effect and all Absolutely. of these other 120 different cannabinoids that all interact together. Right. It makes it really easy for people to think they understand, but yes. it actually results in an inferior quality product for medical patients. Indeed. Absolutely. And and again, that goes to descheduling would allow more research. Now, we have good research, not to say that there isn't any, which some people would argue that there isn't. And that's just not true. Um, but it would allow much more nuanced information to be to be published and to be disseminated about all of those other cannabinoids and the interplay between them. Um, and the, the more that we can understand it, the better we can inform the healthcare community, the more that we can inform the patient and the patient can be a much more informed and sophisticated uh, consumer of their uh, for their own healthcare. So I had a question for you from a pharmacist perspective. How do we go from not just I recommend you use cannabis to I recommend you use a topical or a tincture, mm-hmm. an edible oil, yep. solventless versus solvent extracts? Like how do we start to develop into the conversation of these products have different dosages, different timelines of absorption, different requirements even for how we need to be testing them. How do we start to move that conversation, do you think, from any and all of this is covered into directed use, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think it's so important for healthcare providers to be familiar. And familiar is really all that some people want to be. And that's okay. Um, But yeah, I think that's where, again, a pharmacist or a very um, well-trained healthcare professional that knows the patient, that has a, a true enduring relationship with each patient can really advise about. So some patients, um, 
may, you know, if they have a long smoking history, I've heard patients say, well, you know, I'd like to use cannabis, but I, I don't want to smoke it. I was a smoker for 40 years and I'm afraid that if I smoke cannabis, it'll, I'll be right back where I was and I don't want to be there. And that is a, that is a valid concern for patient, for that patient. There are other patients who may have lung disease who would benefit from an inhalation product, but they, you know, just because of uh, other conditions that they, you know, that's just, it's just not going to give them the best uh, therapeutic effect. So that I, I think that not only the, the dosage of the product, but definitely the dosage form is part and parcel of the entire selection process and recommendation process. And you definitely have to know patient preferences and values and goals of therapy in order to recommend something. You can't just, um, it, it's very different from the way that we are traditionally trained. Um, as a pharmacist, I've had to throw away so much of what I know about how other medications work. Uh, as a you know, if a person goes into the doctor's office, they have high blood pressure. The doctor writes, uh, you know, maybe selects a particular medication and then writes the dosage on there. You take it to the pharmacy, and then it's very cut and dry. With um, with cannabis, it's so much more complicated and nuanced that uh, you know it's most people prefer, in at least in traditional pharmaceuticals, an oral route. Um, but that is not the case, nor is it appropriate for all cannabis patients. And I think a mix of different dosage forms is probably uh, a, a good um, recommendation for a lot of patients because it, the dosage forms differ in the onset of action, the duration of action um, for and, and, and other things related that are you know, patient specific things that would inform one dosage form over another, um, probably uh, um, having a mix of all of those things available to the patient um, is the best way to go. For instance, I, I was disappointed uh, going back to the bill that did pass. One of the things I did see that I was disappointed about is Kentucky allows no flour for sale in their medical cannabis program. You know, Kentucky has a long history of bad juju when it comes to tobacco and smoking. And um, and I see where that's coming from. But honestly, I think from a patient standpoint, um, having an inhalation dosage form along with, which is a quick acting uh, dosage form, along with a longer acting dosage form like an uh, um, uh, edible, an oral um, tincture, a, um, you know, something that is more long acting, that that's a better control of, say, pain uh, with if you have chronic pain, you want something that is on board for a longer period of time. But you also need something for breakthrough pain. And that's where an inhalation product can come in. And that's where a patient can be able to really, um, really dial in what they need rather than um, be left, frankly, where we are with opioids now is just sort of chasing, chasing the condition with a sub, sub, sub or, um, uh, inferior method. 
when you said no flower, are you referring to SB 47 that just passed? Yes. So flower is allowed, but there has to be, mm -hmm. Mm. there has to be a label on it though, that says not for combustion purposes. So it's supposed to be specifically for edible creation or for vaporization, but that's such a wink, wink, nod, nod thing. It. Uh, Okay. So, okay. That, I guess that's what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of, you know, no, no actual um, combustible flower is, uh, products would be allowed, um, officially, I guess. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, thank you, for, thank you for that. Um, so you, th- I'm, I'm thinking just from like dosage form perspective and you provide such a good, um, background from the, from the industry or production side of it. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, okay. So, uh, I see what you're saying is the wink, wink, nod, nod part. Um, and I'll but, also say vaporization is a different form heating something up with hot air and convection and then, you know, using an electronic dryer vaporizer is different, but I think there's also, and this, I'm sorry if I'm starting to talk now, but like the combustion method does give you different results. Not only are there dangers, but there are also terpenes, cannabinoids, other items that unless you combust them are not going to give the same effect. Well, that's true. Yes. I mean, we do have to heat uh, cannabinoids to a certain level to activate them, to decarboxylate them. So, um, so yes, we, we do have to um, walk a fine line between um, the, you know, having, having the right chemical components and the right dosage form or delivery method um, uh, available. So the one thing I'm not a fan of is like vaping, for instance. So, I mean, vaping, as we know, has... Vaping oil, you mean? Vaping oils, yes. Thank you, yes. Um, you know, that that to me is, is problematic in that we know that vaping, at least in the nicotine space, has caused so many health issues that we, and that we haven't even like long-term discovered yet. Um, so, and we're already uh, seeing studies coming out on that for isolates for cannabis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. CBD right. isolate, THC isolate, especially in terms of vaporizers, you know, the solvents that you're using yeah. to allow these things to be smoked. That's right. one of the reasons I'm in favor of solventless extraction. It's mm-hmm. just a safer method of extraction. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there are we know how to do it safer. Uh, we know how to, how to extract it, um, in a way that, that increases the potency to the levels that we want, but also does not have any residue and does not have any of those untoward, um, components in it that can be problematic. So, um, so, so yes, I'm a, I'm a, huge fan of, of doing it the safer way. But of course the industry is interested in the cheaper way. And I, um, yeah, I, I don't like a lot of the, the vape oil, vape pens and things like that. I know that those are, they can be very cheap. And of course the, the mechanism the cheaper they are, um, the more likely, the heavy metals in the canister or the um, cartridge itself and the heating elements 
can leach those heavy metals into what you're smoking and into your lungs. So, or if you have bad base material, the heavy metals that are getting taken into the flower. Absolutely. Right. Um, so, so if anything, I mean, I'm, I honestly, I mean, inhalation is the most efficient way to get cannabinoids into the bloodstream. Um, and it, and it bypasses what is known as the first pass effect, which is um, um, the mechanism that we see with oral dosage forms for many different drugs, not just cannabinoids, but um, any drug that is ingested, it enters the, before it enters the bloodstream, it goes through the liver and the liver is a great filter and uh, break uh, uh, an organ that breaks down a lot of drugs before it even reaches the, the bloodstream. So, uh, it, if you can think of it as sort of, um, uh, you know, the, it's called the first pass effect before, because it happens before the drug reaches systemic circulation, but that removes a lot of the drugs. So you have to sort of preload a lot ahead of time so you can get a therapeutic effect after liver, uh, after the liver is done with it. But there are ways to overcome the first pass effect and inhalation is definitely a very efficient way that bypasses that. So you can, um, you can uh, adjust the dose very quickly. I mean, honestly, if you, you know, if you don't want it to be in your bloodstream anymore, you just stop using the inhalation device with edibles. It's not as easy to remove the drug once it has been ingested as we know. So, so yeah, I, um, I think there is, there are good and bad dosage forms. Um, or I don't say, well, not good and bad dosage forms, but there are riskier and less risky ways to consume cannabis. Um, and that maybe that's where more reg- regulation does need to be. That's where I am a fan of more regulation is keeping these bad apples out of the, the, that, that market and being able to protect the public and, and making transparency uh, an absolute must on how these products are packaged. Holding eight, aces painted black. 
scared little losers. The crooked coward by the name of Carl took Carl forty-five as sharp as a knife, and he stole that old soldier's hide. That brings me to another, I think maybe, maybe this is a segue into labeling mm-hmm. of cannabis products. And, you know, any Kentuckian who has gone into a CBD store um, or has purchased CBD is, it, has seen this, is it's the labeling can be, it, it's all over the place. Usually I'll see the total number of milligrams of CBD, for instance, on the bottle. Um, but that involves math where you have to divide by the volume, say, of the tincture or mm-hmm. the oil that you have. And then you have a dropper that is in the bottle that may or may not be marked with a milliliter or a half a milliliter. So then you're left with figuring out your you have to divide the, the total volume and the dosage to find out how many um, how many milligrams are in a milliliter, for instance. And then you have a dropper that you have to eyeball to see how you, you know, to see how, how much of that milligram or milliliter you can use. So the, the, the labeling and the packaging to me is very problematic. And I wish that we had a more uniform way of, of labeling much like, I mean, the FDA, um, I mean, we do for pharmaceuticals, traditional pharmaceuticals, we have standards of how medications have to be labeled. Um, even even the most noxious leaves and berries that do nothing pharmaceutically that are on the shelves and bottles, they on the on the um, label, they do say how much of a medication or how much of a product is in. Sorry, my dog is barking. <laughs> they oh, do say how much of a product is in each dosage form, each capsule, each tablet. So, so 
that's more transparent and that that's how we as as healthcare consumers are kind of used to looking at medications by the dosage unit. Right. But CBD and THC products are not, or, you know, just cannabinoid products are not labeled in that way. And it, that's uh, maddening and frightening to me and that patients are having to navigate that um, and figure this out on their own. Absolutely. Well, and even the idea of how and what are you actually getting? Like if yep. you're taking an edible, it's not right. going to be nine, it's going to be 11. Once you've uh -huh. heard it, it's a radically different process, right? Absolutely. I've but they think that. that they're getting nine because that's what they're right. choosing. That's yes, one of the benefits, right. I think, to like tincture. It goes directly into your bloodstream and you right. don't have that liver and small intestine conversion right. in the same way. That, that's right. Right. And but I mean, that you we can use that to our benefit. Right. Because it absolutely. It's, because we have nine circulating, but we also have that active metabolite of 11 hydroxy THC. And that is what gives it its long-term efficacy, its longer duration. So yes, we can use that to our benefit, but again, it's harder to titrate the dose because of the longer onset to action. Mm -hmm. um, and, what and, you ate that day. Uh, absolutely. I mean, what you ate before and after your, the, the, how fast or slow your, your, your GI system moves, uh, the, frankly, the pH of your stomach contents. If you mm -hmm. take a medication that lowers the amount of acid you have in your stomach because you have heartburn, well, that can affect the, the amount of cannabinoids that, you, uh, that get actually to the bloodstream. One interesting thing about this bill, and this moves off of labeling, advertising for cannabis is not allowed, which I like. And uh -huh. I think, like you said, there should be a standardized label on it. But it's interesting the division that comes up when you mention to legislators or to people in other industries. Yes, I agree that cannabis shouldn't be advertised or, you know, have colorful labels, but neither should alcohol or pharmaceuticals. Uh -huh. And then the conversation oh. shifts. And I'm curious about your opinions on that. Oh, it, it, it drives me crazy. I think shortly after I got out of pharmacy school is when the whole um, direct to consumer marketing of pharmaceuticals was more, de I guess, deregulated. And so that's when you started seeing all of these commercials where the, 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 the person is like hang, gl hang gliding over a field of wheat <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they they can't be they, some of them. If, if they mention what the drug does, then it ha the, the regulations are now if they mention what the drug does. So like it's for allergies, seasonal allergies. Well, then if they say that, then they have to mention all of the the fast talking side effects that you hear sort of uh, slightly under the very peppy music that is playing mm -hmm. in the commercial. Um, but then the more maddening to me is the drug commercials that say the name of the drug have people doing things that you you know want to do like hang gliding naturally mm -hmm. and other things <laughs> but they don't say what the drug is and but they say ask your doctor if if it's right for you and that, that to me is just preposterous because i'm sure so many people go well you know what i have always wanted to hang glide and I think I'm going to ask my doctor if that drug is right for me. And it turns out that drug is, uh, you know, a female patient goes in and that drug is for prostate cancer. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's ridiculous that we market pharmaceuticals that way. And other countries do not do that. And they think it is ridiculous that we in America do. Absolutely. Um, I think yeah. with alcohol as well, like, look at all these beautiful people having fun. Oh, You're yeah, drinking. Absolutely. Why aren't you drinking? Right, right. Don't you want to be cool like all these people? I mean, I grew up in the uh, the Joe Camel era of, you know, the the panic of it appealing to kids. And frankly, he was a cartoon camel. And I, yeah, I can see where the the advertisements were wink, wink, nod, nod, uh, targeted to younger uh, potential customers. Oh, not even so, wink, wink, nod, nod, just straight well, no. targeted. No, yeah, you're right. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. No, it's so, like I get a lot of pushback in Frankfurt from a lot of alcohol people because I'm like, no, yes, you're right. But also down the road from us, I can buy Sunny D vodka seltzer. Like, yeah, you don't see any sort of like, like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunny D, like the kid right. beverage. Yeah. Yes, this 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 uh, Sunny D situation is a new phenomenon that I'm just becoming aware of. And <laughs> I mean, what are we going to have? Capri Sun Seltzer, the Capri Sun Shooters <laughs> next. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it is ridiculous. And so so, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the I don't think we should. I think there should be oversight of marketing of pharmaceuticals. I think we do it poorly now because uh, it's you're you're telling a patient who doesn't have the clinical knowledge to assess for themselves. They're going to a doctor or a, some some practitioner and and uh, some in some cases you know demanding a particular drug that they have researched on Doctor Google mm-hmm. and. And, and doctors run a business like anybody else, and they need patients to practice their craft. And many of them are worried about a bad Yelp review. And so they feel pressured to write a prescription when a cheaper, less, um, less problematic or less noxious medication could do the job just as well. Or frankly, no medication uh, is needed. But they write a prescription um, in order to appease people. So it's just creating this false market driven by uh, driven by the images that we see in the advertisements. Um, and it, you know, I think it contributes to antibiotic resistance. I think it contributes to uh, under treatment of other conditions. And it's just it's just a bad environment all the way around. I wanted we to, need to do better. <laughs> we do. And that that's one of the things I like about being able to work with cannabis is I'm like, yes, let's not just talk about this issue in cannabis. Let's also mm-hmm. bring this out to the wider yeah. conversation. Yeah. Well, and like you said, with the with alcohol, I mean, many of our legislators or several of our legislators are uh, own distilleries or have financial interests in things that for some reason they see as competition to medical cannabis. And I I don't, you, you can't explain that away to me any day of the week, but, um, but there's a lot of just the, you know, I mean, we think of it's a double standard. 
It's, it's absolutely a double standard. We, but patients think of things that are over the counter as, oh, it's over the counter. It must be safe, right? Yeah, and or consequence-free. Or consequence-free. That's right. And gosh, you I mean, anybody can go in and buy um, a, you know, something off the Tylenol off the shelf in any place that sells anything. But Tylenol is, I mean, it causes more an acetaminophen, not just brand name Tylenol, but acetaminophen product causes more cases of chronic and acute liver failure in this country, more deaths related to liver toxicity than than many, many, many other drugs. Certainly it causes a lot more uh, bad patient outcomes than anything cannabis related. And there have been multiple FDA advisory boards and patient advocate boards that have uh, said that if if even back in the I mean gosh back in the 70s there were really smart people uh, at, at the FDA or in advising the FDA that said if acetaminophen were discovered today it would never be over the counter it would never be something that appears in frankly every cough and cold product and all kinds of sneaky other um, medications and people don't realize how noxious it is and how dangerous, how, how dangerous acetaminophen can be the, the difference between what is supposedly a safe dose and supposedly a, uh, a, a toxic dose. So, yeah, I mean, the things that are harming us are lurking in everything that we can purchase and yet people raise alarm bells on things that are known to have, much less toxicity. So herein lies part of my like days filled with rage (laughs) is the, the, just the, the inconsistency and um, uh, uh, the inconsistency of the messaging that we send the inconsistency yet, yet there is solid science to back up all of these things that we know to be true. Oh, absolutely. Well, the expectations too. I mean, I get hit over the head every single day with people saying, what about the smell of cannabis growing? Mm -hmm. And every day I went to school in Nelson County for what, 14 years, the smell of sour mash was so heavy in the air that you could smell it anywhere. Our gym was built to be half of a bourbon barrel. They switched the warehouses from white to black because there is a black fungus that grows on everything from the emissions. Like there are issues here, like you're talking about the double standard. You're preaching to the choir. I I love getting into this, though, because I'm like, no, yes, let's talk about this. That's Mm -hmm. 100 percent what we need to do. But solution wise, you're talking about lab results and sort of what you can find on the label and not find. I want to know your thoughts on the QR code phenomenon that's really developed in a lot of other states where you can go straight to the full lab test and you don't have to try and cram in onto this tiny bottle. What are the most essential pieces of this? And let's cut everything else out. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love I tell every patient who asks me, um, you know, where. Where should I buy? Even of course now, just now in Kentucky, it's just CBD products. But you know what? What's a good place to buy CBD? And I'll say, look, I mean, 
what you should look for in any product is the COA. And if you don't, if you can't get ready access to look at the COA yourself, um, then keep, keep walking. I mean, you should, as a mm-hmm. consumer, you should know what's going in your body. And there are regulations about standards of pharmaceuticals um, that, you know, we, you don't have to know what every little filler is in your, um, your blood pressure medicine, because there are standards that are set for that. But unfortunately, I mean, we don't have such standards in the supplement slash natural product in uh, cannabis industry. So I do think that patients need to insist that where they purchase and who they purchase from provide that information readily. And I love the QR code situation. I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, if it's on a tiny product package, um, it might be hard to you know shove in a QR code on the label. But, you know, any place that you work has to have those safety sheets of all the chemicals that are used in that facility. Um, like, you know, in a hospital, all the cleaning supplies, all the medications, there's the, the material data safety sheet that you can go to and you can look to see all of the ratings of what, what is in that component. So purveyors of cannabis products, I think, should also have such a database. If it's Absolutely. online, then you have... You have an iPad there on the counter where it can any product that you carry can be readily accessed by the person before they purchase a product. Or if it's a QR code, maybe it's a notebook full of QR codes or whatever. I absolutely tell anybody that you should look at the COA. You should make sure that the place that you're getting it from insists that all the products they sell have a COA. That Mm -hmm. is. And if they're dodgy about it, well, then, you know, uh, question mark, (laughs) question mark. Right. Um, Super. If they're if they're being sketchy about it, then there's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. And you certainly wouldn't purchase. I mean, you wouldn't go into the grocery store and and buy a food product that didn't have a I mean, I wouldn't buy, you know, didn't have a nutritional label where I couldn't see. The, all the other ingredients that go into, you know, your chicken stock or whatever you're buying, um, because you don't want rat droppings and uh, erectile dysfunction drugs mm-hmm. <laughs> in your chicken stock. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe that is a, uh, there's a certain population that would, but, you know, I mean, we have well, that's these a whole conversation, right? Again, the things that we allow in the U.S. that other countries have already said, no, no. No, yes, I know. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah, I think that it's so important for transparency to be uh, first of mind because the industry isn't going to do it. The industry is left to police themselves. So we as consumers have to vote with our feet. And Mm. the only way we can do that is be knowledgeable ourselves or um, consumers have to have trusted professionals that insist on these things and that can advise them properly. Well, and I also think that, and this is my viewpoint too, and I always come from this angle, just in terms of having a local supplier, your ability to verify your own supply chain is just Mm -hmm. so much easier. No, if yes, it's coming absolutely. from another country, there's no way for me to tell 
-hmm. before it gets to the border, what it was, what was Mm -hmm. added to it, what wasn't added to it. Yep. And we see that in all other things, lots of other things, right, that come Mm -hmm. from lots of countries where we've had problems with leaching chemicals, with um, counterfeit medications, with medications that have contamination of, you know, cross-contamination of something that el- something else that is produced in that facility. Food, um, fertilizers. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. So, so yes, local, the, you know, the key, uh, as local as you can get it, then the, the, the number of hands on it and the number of times it, uh, it changes hands is lower. And therefore, it seems easier to me to be able to verify that it doesn't have the things that you don't want it to have. And we've been talking for quite a while. Was there anything that you wanted to bring up to like educate listeners on or to get the word out about before the end? Um, Yeah. One thing I think of is I have gotten so many questions about workplace testing. And I don't know if you've Mm. talked about this on other episodes yet, but I think that's as a as a pharmacist or as a healthcare provider, that's one thing that I have gotten a lot of questions. So I thought I'd just kind of go over that real quick. Um, a lot of people now say, "Oh, well, now, well, when the executive order went into place in January, um, okay, so I I meet all the criteria that is necessary for the the executive order. I've gone to another state and purchased a cannabis product, and I am I'm." compliant with all of the things that needs to happen. Um, can I just like, if, if I have to have a random drug test, can I just show them my documentation and then it's cool? And my answer is uh, probably not, or at least it's, it depends because m- workplaces are, are uh, certainly within their power to set their own policies about cannabis tolerance and cannabis use among employees. So regardless, and this is true for any state, regardless of what the state's stance or level of cannabis regulation is, um, employers have different regulations for their own employees. So my recommendation to people who have asked is um, to, you know, definitely be very clear about what your employer's stance on cannabis use is. Um, some, and obviously some professions are more strict than others, healthcare providers and first responders and things like that. I mean, they probably have a no, uh, what is it called? Um, no tolerance, you know, or zero tolerance level of cannabis use. And that could, you know, that could be, uh, you know, you know, whether you're, you're a police officer off duty and you're using cannabis even for a medical in a state that allows medical use, I mean, that, that might be off limits to you. Um, But other employers have, have publicly come out to say, we're no longer, um, we're no, we're no longer testing for cannabis or um, we don't, or, or, you know, they're sort of taking a, I I hate to say, don't ask, don't tell, but it's, it's a, a non-aggressive stance toward cannabis use with its employees. And then um, others have sort of quiet quit, I'll say, in the testing. Um, 
they'll they'll do testing, say a saliva test for pre-employment testing and saliva tests for cannabis, for instance, uh, I think it only shows up in the saliva, maybe 24 hours at the outset, 48 hours of use. And so by doing so, they are they are low key saying um, we we are not as interested in long-term or, or cannabis use among a certain set of employees. Uh, I think it's a frankly, for lots of businesses, because if they do, if they are one that needs to do random testing and a lot of people in, especially in adult use states are testing positive for cannabis and on the books, they have a policy that is very uh, no tolerance for cannabis then what are they going to do with all these people that test positive and have used it legally according to state law? But um, are they going to fire all of them? Is that their, is that their policy? And, and you know, it's just kind of a HR nightmare. Well, um, and that is kind of what they're finding. The companies that go with the path of, we're just going to fire these people all mm-hmm. of a sudden in a time of, you know, employment shortages, mm-hmm. it just compounds the problem. It does. Yeah. And I mean, I've long been a proponent, but working in the addiction space, I've long been a proponent of of uh, kind of the ban the box um, movement where most employers will have that box that you have to check. Do you have a previous uh, felony or do you have a previous drug conviction? And so many people, good people that are very skilled in what they do have a previous low level arrest, say, for cannabis possession and even like 20 years prior when they were in their early 20s and yet you're telling me that that person can't be a great electrician or plumber or pharmacist for that matter absolutely Um, makes no sense makes no sense so we could have a whole other episode on law enforcement or like or employment law alone and cannabis um but yeah, a, a lot of companies are are that have taken such a hardline stance have have now it's it's come to bite them because now they can't they say they can't find good people and frankly, yeah, you can you you had good people you have a good people and you have not come to terms with the reality of what. Um, cannabis is doing for people. People, most people who use cannabis, frankly, um, I think. I mean, even his, you know, historically, the longer as as long as humans have made use of cannabis um, uh, as a as a uh, not not industrially, but for their own use for uh, as a cultivated plant. As a cultivated plant. Thank you. Um, you know. I, I think most people, many, many people who use cannabis technically and purchased as an adult use slash recreational um, circumstance are truly treating something. I mean, they're using it to treat a condition, be it anxiety, be it chronic pain. I mean, even mm-hmm. if they are not part of a med- medical cannabis program proper, there is something that the, that cannabis is doing for them. That well, is under and the medical benefits life. preventatively as well, not just well, as absolutely. an end of life treatment. Oh, absolutely. Right. And 
and for, and many patients have found that the medical community has not met their needs as far as anxiety, chronic pain, depression, um, you know, somatic oh, the depression one that. makes me insane. Mm-hmm. Do you ever hear the stories about the, uh, endocannabinoid antagonists that they tried to create? Oh, yes. Yes. I've heard the, yes. They are ago. nightmare stories. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's like, that was, that completely backfired. Um, I can't remember the, uh, there was a few and I can't remember the name, but they were just, they were just garbage dump fires of. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I believe one of them, they put out a trial run and within three weeks of the trial run, they already yeah. had pulled it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and that's where, you know, you get a lot of synthetic cannabinoids and, and basement chemists that create these cannabinoids. Um, Not even you, basement chemists, what no, epidiolex, no. sativex, no, well, like they've been trying forever to make better synthetic cannabinoids. True, true. Um, but there's, there's a lot of illicit synthetics that, you know, have been uh, made. And, and, and the problem is, is that they don't interact the same way. No. as natural cannabinoids they they have different affinity for the receptors they have different uh, pharmaceutical effects and they're not predictable in that way and that's what makes them so dangerous um so so yes um there have been lots of um trials and failures by by people trying to to i guess improve something but they made things worse <laughs> Amber, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And I think this was also a really good conversation, even as far as interviews usually go. Oh, thank you. Well, I can, uh, people will ask me a lot about it because I, I love learning. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always, I'm always here for the science and I always love to hear about how we as medical professionals can serve patients and, the more I learn about cannabis, the more excited and curious I get, but also the more filled with rage I get. <laughs> I think you understand that too. But, you know, I tell people who ask about me, I'm like, I could talk about it all day. I mean, it probably would be super boring because I could get into the, the, the lipophilic fatty acid chains and all that. But that's just the chemist in me that's nerding out on that part. But, um, but they're important. They're so They, they are. That's right. That's right. And I, I just think that, you know, thank goodness that Kentucky is finally moving forward. We need educated and, and, and open-minded people to advise the people who are making policy. We need people who uh, have stories about how cannabis has affected their lives to call their legislators and mm-hmm. continue continue to be advocates and resources for the people who are making policy. Because frankly, I mean, legislators, they don't, they don't, I mean, I've, I always contact my legislators and say, Hey, I'm a pharmacist. If you have things that come up about medications, please use me as a resource. And you know how many times I've gotten called zero. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are, there are few, experts. I, I mean, I, 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 well, this is my soapbox too. I mean, we need to be in contact with the people who are making policy. We need to educate ourselves. We need to be good advocates for ourselves and for our family members um, 
to, you know, to, to make our own healthcare decisions. And, um, and we need to make sure that things are done right. You know, I mean, like insist with your dollars that you are, you value a quality product and that you value quality healthcare in the cannabis space. And if we if we can do that, if we as consumers of healthcare can all decide on that, then then we're all better, because people who don't have that voice, who don't have the the knowledge or means to to have a louder voice, are going to benefit as well. Um, so uh, so that's my little space of the world that I'm trying to do is educate my fellow healthcare providers and specifically pharmacists about cannabis because it's here. Patients are using it. Patients need healthcare professionals that are a, a, a willing voice of, of um, advocacy in their, in their corner. And it's very appreciated. Is there any resources for if people want to find out more about you or like a website or do you do any of that? Yeah. So uh, I have consulted with patients who have questions about drug interactions or um, just even questions about how to, um, how to access cannabis with the current environment in Kentucky. Um, and my website is ambercan.com. Um, and my, at my email address is hello at ambercan.com. So I'm certainly willing to answer questions um, via email. And then um, some patients I, um, I have met with to consult about the more nuanced things related to disease states and stuff. And then I will say if you if any of your listeners are uh, healthcare professionals, um, I, I'll put a plug in for the master's program that I'm working on now from the University of Maryland, Baltimore. If it's something that um, a healthcare professional, it really wants to get into cannabis therapeutics or know more about it. Um, th- it is an excellent program. There, the program is not designed f- just for healthcare professionals. Many of my classmates are lawyers, social workers, lab technicians, patient advocates. I mean, it's all over. It's not just a healthcare professional program, um, but I have found it to be incredibly rewarding and useful uh, in my own self um, journey of learning in, in about cannabis. So um, that is that is one uh, official t- uh, type of learning environment that some people might be interested in.